Hey, this is John Amble, Editorial Director at the Modern War Institute at West Point. This is a very special episode of the Urban Warfare Project podcast. Our friends at the Association of the United States Army have an excellent podcast of their own called Army Matters, and they recently invited three experts on urban warfare to join the podcast. MWI's own John Spencer, Dr. Russell Glenn, and retired Colonel Patrick Mahaney. The conversation they recorded was hosted by retired Colonel Dan Roper, AUSA's Director of National Security Studies, and AUSA was generous enough to allow us to publish the audio here as well. It's a fascinating discussion with really three of the leading thinkers on urban warfare. It's also the first in a two-episode series, so be sure to find and subscribe to the Army Matters podcast so you don't miss the second episode in the series. All right, enjoy the conversation. Joining us for today's episode are three thought leaders for the U.S. Army and the Department of Defense in this field. John Spencer, Dr. Russell Glenn, and Colonel Retired Pat Mahaney, Jr. Dr. Russell Glenn is a retired U.S. Army officer who also has been a senior analyst in the think tank community, serving on the faculty of Strategic and Defense Studies Center, the Australian National University, and with the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command. He's worked on urban operations since October 1993, and heads his own research and analysis company. The author of over 50 books and reports, he is editor and author of Trust and Leadership, the Australian Army Approach to Mission Command, released in November as part of AUSA's book program. John Spencer is chair of Urban Warfare Studies, co-director of the Urban Warfare Project, and host of the Urban Warfare Project podcast at the Modern War Institute Research Center at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He served over 25 years in the Army, as an infantry soldier to include two combat deployments to Iraq. Colonel retired Patrick Mahaney served more than 30 years as a U.S. Army Special Forces officer in key leadership positions from the tactical to strategic levels, including nine combat tours. He commanded the U.S. Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, a tactical Special Forces Battalion, and a Special Operations Task Force in Afghanistan. His final assignment was Director and Senior Military Fellow for the Chief of Staff of the Army's Strategic Studies Group. A member of the Council on Foreign Relations, an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. He currently serves as senior advisor in DOD's National Security Innovation Network. He's co-founder and director of the National Center for Urban Operations, a nonprofit based in New York City, and serves as senior mentor for the Army's Dense Urban Studies Strategic Broadening Seminar. Gentlemen, welcome to today's podcast. The U.S. Army's Operations Manual, Field Manual 3-0, and the multi-domain operations concept describe how warfare is being driven increasingly into urban areas and underground and how this can have instantaneous global strategic effects. To help us put urban warfare into context, we're going to ask John Spencer to convey some insights from his experience in Sadr City, Iraq. Over to you, John. Thank you, sir. In early 2008, I was Captain John Spencer a company commander in an armored brigade combat team, the 3rd Brigade Infantry, 4th Infantry Division in eastern Baghdad. Most listeners will know Baghdad, a very large city of over 6 to 7 million, depending on your count. And I was deployed there as part of the ending of the surge in the Baghdad security plan. Day-to-day -day operations was basically counterinsurgency and stability operations. One day in early March of 2008, something changed. Our first notice was that the trash was no longer running and nobody was coming to get our trash. We should have took that as a sign as a disruption in the urban environment. But that day, 
the entire city basically exploded. Unbeknownst to us in the operational plan, there were other cities that the Iraqi government was making plans for operations against the Shia population or insurgents. And that caused an explosion in our environment. And we went from overnight conducting daily patrols to increase the stability and wide area security operations to a heavy, high-intensity combat situation in dense urban terrain, something I never thought, especially being my second deployment, that I would be engaged in. But we went from daily patrols out to meet leaders to platoons being overrun or nearly overrun by insurgent forces massing. An insurgent force armed with RPGs, anti-tank weapons, mortars, something we had not seen at that point. And the biggest change was there was also rockets emanating out of a certain area of Baghdad called Sadr City, which if the listeners aren't familiar, is a city within a city. It's a neighborhood of Baghdad. It's really its own city of over 2 million people. And something that is synonymous with major combat operations in urban environments of the past, there are many political constraints at the time, whether it's rules of engagements on what weapons we could use or what things we could not do. But because of certain operations that had happened in the past, Sadr City, where the threat was emanating, as in there were insurgents coming out of Sadr City, launching rockets into the international zone, the green zone, and having a disruption in the strategic environment and the strategic discussion of the entire country. That city was off limits to U.S. forces, except for very special circumstances. So we were immediately given the mission to try to regain the initiative. I immediately had to transform my formation from a counterinsurgent stability operation into a high-intensity combined arms maneuver formation with tanks and Bradley formations fighting an armed resistance that wasn't using guerrilla tactics. It was using mass-on-you tactics. So the first time I ended up having to enter a eight-story building and separate myself from my firing unit was during this time. The first time I tried to go down an alley to pursue an enemy and couldn't because the alley was too narrow for my vehicles was during this time. And the first time I physically trying to maneuver close combat forces had to turn myself sideways because the, the density of the urban train was during this time in the fight for Sider City. We quickly realized that this was about train analysis. So we knew that the rockets that the enemy were firing into the city had to be stopped. And that's really where our operation transitioned into putting up a obstacle that prevented the enemy from coming outside of the city that we weren't allowed to go into. And then it was a fight every day to put that obstacle, concrete walls around the city almost, in order to prevent the enemy from coming out. And we had to fight every day for that. So it was a significant episode in my time of what dense urban close combat felt like. And I have to be honest, at times I felt like I was unprepared for that. Thanks for that vignette that describes the complexity and lethality of conducting operations in an urban environment, which we all have to continue to go to school on in order to be prepared for the challenges that we're facing today and into the future. To build upon that great start, we're going to ask Dr. Russell Glenn to provide us some definitions of terms that are useful and doctrinally correct in describing urban operations. And then he and Colonel Mahaney are going to dive deep into urban operations and its many facets, how it's different, and what's being done about it, and what needs to be done about it. So, Dr. Glenn, over to you, please. Thanks, Dan. So let me lay two foundation stones here, two definitions. If we're going to deal with urban operations, we first of all need to understand what an urban area is. Depending on the country that you're in, 
National governments define an urban area as anything from a built-up area with a population of 2,500 or more to one of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, again, depending upon the country. If you're an academic or an urban theorist, you might lean toward defining an urban area in terms of density. A number of people or a number of structures per unit area or per unit volume, because of course, when we're talking about urban areas, we're often talking about a three-dimensional space, not only above ground, but below ground. I prefer a much more pragmatic definition, one that you can find in Demographia World Urban Areas. It's a free publication you can get online, comes out in April every year. And for me, the operator, this definition is far more helpful than those more technical. Demographia defines an urban area as a continuously built up land mass of urban development containing no rural land. One of the best thought of as the lighted area that can be observed from an airplane or a satellite on a clear night, something that a soldier, a member of an NGO, or any other organization can easily grasp. But we need to caveat that. If we look at the definition closely, it talks about a continuously built up landmass. But if we think of Singapore, we think of Hong Kong, we think of many other cities around the world, they have liquid barriers, rivers, gulfs, whatever, that separate what are obviously a continuous and single unit as far as an urban area is concerned. Look at Hong Kong, for example. You've got the island of Hong Kong separated by a short stretch of water with the rest of Hong Kong on the mainland in Kowloon. So a good definition for sure, but one that we do need to use and adapt as necessary. The second definition that we want to take a look at is that of megacity. A megacity has been defined as an urban area of population 1 million or greater, 7 million or greater, 8 million or greater, and currently today, 10 million or greater. Well, how much help is that to an operator or somebody who's in a non-governmental organization, a intergovernmental organization? What's the difference between a city of 9 million and 10 million in population? Not a great deal, I would offer. Whereas the difference between a city or an urban area of 10 million and 37 million, the approximate population of the largest urban area in the world, Tokyo, is considerably more. So rather than base our understanding of megacity on population alone, let me suggest an alternative definition that, again, I think is far more useful for those who have to conduct operations or aid events in a built-up area. A megacity becomes an urban area of extraordinary population size, geographic spread, physical and social complexity, interconnectedness, and similarly exceptional characteristics to include influence with at least national and broader regional scope. And I'd like to highlight that last portion, to include influence with at least national and broader regional scope, because that broader regional actually expands to worldwide in some cases, as you might envision, thinking of the economic influence, say, of a London, of a New York, of a Tokyo, or of a Hong Kong. This also has operational implications. If you are a combat commander operating in a major city, whether or not it fits the definition of a megacity, hopefully that interconnectedness and hopefully that element of influence that comes to mind when you do think of a megacity can be extended to urban areas that don't qualify. That would still, however, cause you to consider the implications if you target an economic center or, as was the case, in Belgrade in the late 1990s, you incidentally strike the embassy of a foreign country. So including these additional considerations in the definition of a megacity 
now allows you to think in terms of how you might prioritize both your targeting and even more importantly, a recovery after a disaster. Because chances are that you're going to find yourself, whether you're in a civil organization or a military organization, involved in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief far more than a combat operation. In addition to helping the local people recover, say, from a natural disaster then, what other considerations, if you are in a major urban area and a megacity in particular, do you need to consider? Do you prioritize returning the banking sector? Do you prioritize making sure the stock exchange covers quickly? Because that not only allows the locals to recover more quickly, but also impacts the country, the broader region, and very likely thousands of individuals thousands of kilometers away around the world. So with those two definitions, let's move on and look at two key elements of success when you undertake urban operations. First is the comprehensive approach. I'm sure that most listeners are well aware of joint operations in which a military has two or more services that are cooperating, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, any two of those. In other nations, it also might include the Coast Guard or other components of a Defense Department or Ministry of Defense. Whole of government is a step above. Now we're including other elements that might or might not include military, but they're components of a government or perhaps multiple governments if you're in a multinational contingency. All well and good. However, we too often overlook both in our doctrine and in practice, the other elements, the other components, the other capabilities that can assist us. Non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations, such as representatives of the United Nations, faith-based organizations, neighborhoods and community associations, commercial enterprises, and others that might be applicable. If we don't include them in our planning and on our rehearsals, then we are going to find that there's much more in the way of friction when we attempt to assist an urban government or an urban population. If we do rehearse with them, then obviously we can identify where the niches are that these other organizations might fit and be able to save us from having to commit capabilities that are better resourced better used elsewhere. In addition, if we can negotiate with these various entities and bring them on side, then they become a cooperating entity rather than a competing entity. There's only so much in the way of throughput in an airport or in a port. There's only so much bandwidth available when we go into an urban area. If we can coordinate with these other entities prior to going into an actual operation, we can decide how to share these assets rather than compete over them. Now let's look at mission command, the second of two key elements that I would like to emphasize. Whether it's called mission command, which is what the United States Army and many other Western militaries call this approach, or is something by another name, because the same concept is employed by the New York Police Department, the Fire Department in New York City, and many other organizations worldwide. The point is, that these organizations recognize that when you're in an urban operation, chances are you have to have decentralized operations. Senior leaders do not have the capability to see nor to maintain consistent communications with their subordinates at all times. The many vertical structures, a number of electronic or other power producing entities interfere with communications just as those buildings interfere with the visual acquisition of what's going on in a city at a given time. So a leader has a responsibility to number one, provide a clear mission statement to his subordinates so that they can operate effectively without constant guidance. A mission being the who, what, where, and when of the activities that the organization needs to accomplish. 
But because there will be those breaks in communication, and because that senior leader cannot always keep his eyes on what's going on throughout his command in those urban areas, he also, or she also, needs to account for the possibility that the mission may no longer be viable, or that some event may occur that overrides the mission in importance. So in addition to the who, what, where, when, he or she needs to provide a leader's, or what the military calls, a commander's intent. That allows the subordinate to understand the bigger picture within which the mission falls. So that if, for example, the mission is no longer possible because conditions have entirely changed and he cannot communicate with that leader, he still knows how to proceed in a way that will address the overall objectives of his organization and of the larger coalition of which he or she is likely a part. At the same time, we need to remember that mission command is a two-way street. That subordinate, when he can communicate with his leader or her leader, needs to make sure that they stay informed. Resources are always in too short supply, and those senior leaders need to know what the conditions are on the ground so they can allocate what capabilities they do have on hand in the most effective way possible. So two definitions, urban area and megacity, and two key elements to consider as we continue our podcasts, comprehensive approach and mission command. And with that, I'd like to turn this over to my colleague, Pat Mahaney. Thanks, Russ, and greetings from Fort Hamilton, U.S. Army Garrison here in New York City. I'm going to cover a couple of uh, points that I think are particularly relevant for the Army when we're talking about these dense urban environments up to and including megacities. First thing I think that everybody has to understand is it's an operational environment. It's a simple fact on the face of the earth. It's not something that the United States Army can choose to ignore because it is something that we have to be prepared to go into. One of the things that makes it unique, this uh, particularly dense urban environments, is that they're extraordinarily complex. Now, when we talk about an operational environment, it means we have to be prepared for operations across the range of military operations. In the case of these dense urban environments, I think it's fair to say, and it's already been pointed out, that humanitarian assistance and disaster relief are the most likely types of operations that the Army and the Joint Force and our allies would find ourselves in there. That's particularly true in the Indo-Pacific region, as has been pointed out before. But at the end of the day, we have to be prepared for the full range of operations, whether it's stability operations, uh, counterinsurgency, high-intensity force-on-force sort of conflicts. And that brings me to a point about great power competition, which is one of the themes of this podcast. And it's an area, rightfully so, of particular interest and focus of the United States Army. I would highlight that certainly the dense urban environment absolutely has its place when we start to think of and think through and prepare for a great power competition. In the context of great power competition, we could potentially, hopefully not, but could potentially find ourselves in a high-intensity conflict there. But I would really want to emphasize that we have to remember that our competitors, our challengers out there essentially often rely on hybrid, asymmetric, unconventional, irregular approaches, as well as force-on-force combat. And it's a simple fact that we all care about these large, dense urban areas. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why do we care about these around the world? Wouldn't it be better to just ignore them? Well, there's a couple of reasons why we have to stay focused on this. First of all, they're growing as it's a phenomenon that's going on across the world. That There's more of these megacities, dense urban areas. Those areas are growing in size to begin with. So it's not just the absolute number that's going up, but it's the size of these areas. And finally, they're centers of power political, economic, informational, social, cultural infrastructure, not just the infrastructure within the city, but then the infrastructure more broadly for any given country or region of what comes through here. 
And I say that as I'm looking at the shipping channels here coming into New York City and seeing all kinds of different flag ships coming in. They're critical areas. And therefore, in great power competition, just like in any other type of competition, we have to focus on them because they're important to centers of power. So we have to care about them. But now, what are we going to do about them? How do we prepare to operate in these challenging environments? And I would emphasize that it's not enough to just minimally prepare for these operations, basically do the basics and then they will figure it out once we get there. We have to be able to make the most out of our efforts to prepare for these areas. We have to have a robust effort that lowers our risk and maximizes our national advantages in this space. And as I'll point out in my subsequent comments here, I think we have many, many advantages, which we're starting to take advantage of now. I think the U.S. Army is particularly well positioned to take advantage of this. So a few points first. First, because these environments are so complex and they're filled with emerging challenges, you have to consider that the character of operations in this operating environment is different. And this brings up the point that we like to talk about in the Army, rightfully so, about the nature of warfare and conflict and the character of warfare and conflict. In this case, the character of the operational environment, and therefore, I would argue, of the operations that are going to be conducted in them are going to be different than what we're used to. And as a result of that, I think we have to recognize that innovation is absolutely critical in this area. So the question becomes, great, we can innovate, but what is it that we should really focus on? So very briefly, the focus should be on, and what those of us involved in this effort have focused on, are essentially training, education, material development, and conceptual development. A lot of great work has been done up to this point over the last number of years, particularly the last 10 years, in the conceptual development space. But right now, the most exciting activities in this area are really in material development and to a degree in education. To be honest with you, the training aspect of this for a variety of reasons is still being worked on, but I'm going to focus mainly on material development and educational development. Depending on time, I'll give you some examples of what we're doing in these categories. But first, I'd like to make two key points that are relevant to all of these categories, whether training, education, material development, or conceptual development. The first is, in order to succeed in this area, you have to have a network approach. We, the U.S. Army, cannot and should not do this alone in a stovepipe approach. We have to forge the critical linkages that we need in order to be successful. We have to develop networks, grow those networks, and maintain those networks that can help us. It begs the question, well, who are in these networks? Who do we have to? And simply put, it's anybody who can help us because of their expertise, their capabilities in this space. For example, urban first responders, Russ has already mentioned, for example, the FDNY, which is the New York City Fire Department, New York City Police Department, and others who are in that urban first responder base is tremendous. There are many people in academia that can help us, and there's a full range of technologists, likewise, who can help us out, whether they're in Army labs. But I would also quickly point out that innovation hubs across the country are focusing on what's often called urban tech, urban technology. We're talking about startups. We're talking about, in many cases, very small companies that are beyond the startup stage, but they are surprisingly willing to work with us, the U.S. Army and Department of Defense. That's a big portion of what I do. And these are non-traditional partners. They're very innovative, and they want to help us with our challenges to help us become more effective and especially to enhance our survivability and the survivability of our allies, partners, and the citizens of those cities that we may have to operate in. So having said that, I would then point out a second portion that is critical to this effort. It's using our cities themselves. If we're talking about an urban-centric problem, such as dense urban environments, we have to use our cities, our people, our allies and partners to help. And I'll use New York City as an example, but it's just one example. 
So New York City metropolitan area, which most people across the United States Army are not particularly familiar with. But we have some critical assets of the U.S. Army here. And again, I'm just using this as an example and an example that we've developed to a fairly robust, fairly mature ecosystem here to help us out with these challenges. Well, in the New York City metro area, you've got, for example, Picatinny Arsenal, which is the Armament Center of Combat Capabilities Development Command, now part of the Army Futures Command. Tremendous laboratory capability up there. They have maintained a focus on dense urban since at least 2014. So on the material development side, that makes perfect sense. Then we've got a brain trust, frankly, up at West Point. We've got the U.S. Military Academy there. The institutes are there, such as John Spencer up at the Modern Warfare Institute, who's part of this podcast, of course. We've got many other institutes, the Army Cyber Institute, the Combating Terrorism Center, and then obviously the departments of the university. And the networks then that flow out of that into major universities here in the city, such as Columbia, New York University, and Fordham, among others. So you've got an academic and intellectual component there that is incredibly helpful. And then you've got Fort Hamilton. And so again, I want to emphasize again, talking about Army facilities, Picatinny Arsenal, West Point, and then Fort Hamilton. Fort Hamilton, which most people don't even know exists, is a small garrison here, but it's very well situated in the southwest corner of Brooklyn. It's essentially a lily pad where the Army can conduct all kinds of network development activities and reach out to the various communities that can help us here. And it's a natural place. There are barracks here that military units and personnel can use essentially free of charge. So you've got the ability between those relocations, not to mention the Army Reserve centers, the National Guard armories that are in the area, to have a very robust network. So essentially what we've done is try to use New York City as a living laboratory. We all recognize that these operations we're talking about are not about New York City or any particular American city. It's much broader than that. However, if you have the opportunity to use American cities as a living lab, we certainly should take advantage of it. I would argue that we have done so. I'll briefly give you some quick examples in terms of material development and education of what's been going on here. In terms of material development, we really look for to leverage the expertise in areas such as here in New York and use venues here for experimentation because experimenting with new technology environment like you find here with the subterranean high rise in the very densely crowded electromagnetic spectrum or in places where literally millions of people go through, it's very different from experimenting out in a place like China Lake or locations out in the deserts, right? So we've been running in conjunction with all of the partners here, properly coordinated, a series of material development activities here that have been remarkably successful. Likewise, we've had a recently a dense urban environment hackathon, which was meant to happen physically here in New York, in Brooklyn, But because of COVID-19, we turned it into a two-month virtual hackathon in which we were able to get in 44 submissions of technologies and approaches that are very useful for the military. We just were doing a round of judging on that, and it's really amazing what comes out of these types of activities. That activity, by the way, was sponsored by DOD's National Security Innovation Network, the 75th Ranger Regiment, Picatinny Arsenal, TRADOC's Mad Scientist Initiative, and a few others. Finally, in education... We do use this as a hub for the headquarters department of the Army, G35. They sponsor a dense urban studies strategic broadening seminar. It is hubbed out of here using the city, again, as a living laboratory. My final comments would be that using this type of approach for such a complex problem really speaks to what I like to emphasize as a whole-of-nation approach. We're trying to use not just the military itself and DOD, but our civilian partners and uh, willing participants across our society to achieve a whole-of-nation approach to deal with this very complex 
set of challenges for the urban environment. And I would finally state that for the Army, speaking as a soldier for life, what makes me very proud of this is it's a total Army approach. It's the active component, it's the Army National Guard, and it's the Army Reserve have so much to offer here, and they are, in fact, offering it. Gentlemen, this has been an excellent foundation for our discussion addressing operations in a dense urban environment and how the Army is preparing for it. In a moment, we're going to ask Dr. Daphne Richmond Barak, the Assistant Professor in the Water School of Government, Diplomacy, and Strategy at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, Israel, to describe our second episode. But before we introduce her, I'd like to ask each of you, all three of you, if you've got any final comments. So this is John Spencer. My final comment is that conflict in dense urban areas is the most difficult form of warfare that the U.S. Army could undertake. And I think that's why it's deserving of this conversation. Thanks, John. Russ Glenn here. I'd just like to emphasize the comments that have been made by my two peers with a observation that when you look at urban operations, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. These are inevitable operations in our militaries, in our civil governments, in our civilian organizations' futures. So we need to start cooperating now and looking ahead at what the challenges are, rather than having to determine how to solve problems when we're already on the ground in the midst of a catastrophe. Pat? Thanks, Russ. Pat Mahaney here. I would certainly emphasize what my colleagues have stated, and I would also say that because this is such a complex challenge, it's also a fascinating challenge that really brings out the best in ourselves and our partners as we work through these challenges. There are many dual-use technologies. There are approaches that are relevant to urban search and rescue people as well as to soldiers and others. It's a fascinating effort, and I think it is very, very heartening that the United States Army is paying particular attention to this, and I thank the Association of the U.S. Army for this podcast. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this special episode of the Urban Warfare Project podcast, which if you're not yet subscribed to, you can find wherever you get your podcasts. We also want to thank AUSA for making this episode's conversation available to our listeners. Remember to find their Army Matters podcast, where you can hear the second in this two-episode series on urban warfare. And one last thing, what you heard in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Thanks for listening.